I'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you're using those black Bibles again, I think we've made it onto page 996. So uh, 2 Timothy 2, and I'm going to start reading at verse 20, just to the end of the chapter. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You see the words of the sermon title there in verse 21, useful to the master of the house. The master of the house is the Lord Jesus Christ. The house is the church. And the master is looking for people in his house that have this simple description, that are useful. That's what we all want to be, isn't it? The Lord has brought us into his church by his great love and by his grace as it was exhibited on the cross, as we just sang, where the blood ran red. That's how it actually talks about the church over and over again in in the Bible, in Acts 20, 28, it says Jesus purchased or he obtained the church with his own blood. We in the church have been blood-bought. Jesus paid, of course, the ultimate price to bring us into the church. It says in Ephesians 5, he gave himself up for the church. And, and that in itself should motivate us to be his servants. Useful servants, honorable servants, holy, pure, prepared for every good work. Well, that's what Paul is encouraging Timothy with here in this letter. 2 Timothy was a letter Paul originally wrote to Timothy back in the early, probably about the early 60s AD. But as Paul was writing, the Holy Spirit was at the same time inspiring this letter so that it it would become part of the Holy Scriptures for time and eternity. So it's God's very word to us, to our church. If you've missed some of the messages, I just remind you that Paul is writing from a prison in Rome to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. Timothy had been left there by Paul. He's, he'd been ordered to stay there in Ephesus to set some things in order in the church that he had planted there some years before. There were some issues there in that church. The church was being infiltrated, as we learned, by false teachers who were spouting false doctrine. But as is mostly the case even today, the teaching wasn't obviously false to the other Christians there. It was was starting to gain some traction. 
It sounded good, and it was starting to gather a bit of a following. And, and that presented the issue that Paul was writing Timothy to deal with. It was so effective, in fact, that it's likely that Timothy was, by this point, maybe even getting discouraged. That he may have even been tempted to quit. To leave town. To just get up and out of there and leave Dodge. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage Timothy, actually, to do the very opposite. He's writing to encourage him to stick with it, to stay right there, to hang tight, to stay the course. And he reminds him that he shouldn't expect gospel work to be easy work, ever. And Timothy needed that reminder. He shouldn't expect gospel work even to be popular, to be widely accepted. There will be opposition. He would have to endure hardship and suffering along the way. But that shouldn't cause him to quit. It should actually cause him even more to be identified with Christ, ultimately, and with Paul, and then to stay the course. He should keep preaching the word. He should keep guarding the gospel. He should keep, up, keep on training up leaders to, to teach the truth. And even though there's opposition and hardship, he should be confident and fearless because, as we learned in chapter 2, verse 9, just a little bit earlier, the word of God is not bound. The word of God is unstoppable precisely because it is the word of God. It's from God. And today we can have that same confidence. Whatever is going on, whatever kinds of false teachings are out there, whatever voices try to sway people, if, if we stay anchored to the word of truth, we can be confident that we will not ultimately be led astray. If we stay constant to the word of truth. Over in Ephesus, there were some who were swerving from the truth, who were swerving from their faith. They'd opened themselves up and were being led astray. And Paul ends there in verse 19 by saying, yet God's firm foundation stands. He's talking there about the true church. Even though some people were going off track, God keeps his own. You'll always be able to recognize the church as those who hang on to the truth, as those who teach the truth, as those who cut it straight, who teach it accurately, who don't shrink back from teaching the whole counsel of God. And one of the ways you recognize the church, the, or the people that make up the true church, is that everyone who names the name of the Lord, end of verse 19, everyone who names the name of the Lord will depart from iniquity. In other words, true Christians will look less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus. Increasingly so. They will have an ever-decreasing affection for sin and they will have an ever-increasing hatred for sin. A true church, true Christians will stand out and will therefore invite opposition. They'll be unlike the world. They'll be known for their growth in godliness and in Christ-likeness, as opposed to other people who might call themselves Christians, but still, for all intents and purposes, look just like the world. No transformation has taken place. And that's the connection to where we started reading in verse 20. He, Paul picks up with an illustration using bowls and plates, just ordinary household items, serving utensils, basically, in a house. It says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable 
Vessels in a house are, are, are basically just bowls and containers that, that hold stuff. That's what they are. And so here Paul is talking about two different kinds of bowls. It's actually four different kinds, but he, he puts them into two different categories that are assigned a different value. Some for, for holding honorable things, and some have dishonorable purposes. Houses had both kinds in those days. The gold and silver would have been brought out for entertaining, honored guests. Those bowls had noble purposes. The wood and clay were more for everyday use. But they would also be used for other stuff, including carrying out garbage or like sewage type of things. Well, the illustration kind of made me wonder what that might look like in our houses. It made me think of our house. We like to compost, and the stuff that goes into compost, as you know, it's not very pretty. We have to actually bribe our kids to take out the compost. They'll get a, some candy or something, and then they're a little bit more willing to carry it out, but they kind of hold the bucket like this as they walk out. But we have these two shiny silver chrome-type containers in which we put our compost. They're beautiful. And when I pointed out this seeming oddity Marlene this week, she helped me out with why we do that. She says compost is actually called farmer's gold. Compost has value. It has decomposition value. I actually looked it up on the Internet to see if she was right, and she was, as always. I suppose I shouldn't check. But I suppose we symbolize its values, the value of compost even, by using these shiny containers, these shiny vessels, as it were. Things that are garbage, on the other hand, they don't go into pretty containers. They go into garbage bags, mostly reused grocery bags, which, for some reason that I still can't figure out, always have holes in the bottom, which is a real drag when some people put liquidy-type things in the bags can tell who takes out the garbage in our family. But, but garbage is not so noble. It's dishonorable. It has no use. It, 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 it just goes to the dump. Well, Paul is saying that in the church at large, you have these honored vessels. And by that, I think he means true believers who are noble and useful. And he describes these false teachers, which are also infiltrating the church, which are also part of it there, as dishonorable and useless. Yet they're in that house. And then in verse 21, he starts to talk about how to get to that place where where we are useful to the master of the house and how to deal with people that are not so useful, the ones that, that just cause trouble, the ones that are in the church yet are still under the influence, we might say still, still inebriated by the world. But they are drawing people aside. They have influence. Not influenced by the world, but they also exert their influence in the church. Well, Paul starts by reminding Timothy of the essential difference there between these vessels. Therefore, he says in verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. And then he explains what that cleansing himself looks like. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house ready for every good work. And so, in order to be useful and ready, true believers need to cleanse themselves, need to remove themselves from vessels, from people that are useless. We've still got the containers in the house picture in mind here, the good dishes, and 
let's say, the throwaway dishes, so the good dishes and the paper plates. But when you, and let's maybe not say paper plates, that doesn't work so well because you don't usually wash those things, but when you wash those dishes, those different kinds, you usually do the good dishes first, right? If you bring out the china, you'll wash that first in the clean water, the water that starts out clean at least. And, and, you, and you don't wash all the, all, the, all the crud off the going in the garbage dishes first and then wash the clean dishes in that same water. He's saying that there's a separation that needs to happen. Gold and silver shouldn't mix with wood and clay. Gold and silver stick together, right? They don't mix or they don't enter into fellowship, just sort of moving out of the illustration with the people that are going to infect. They cleanse themselves from what is dishonorable. The appeal here is to put yourself in the company of people who will lead you to more godliness, not people who will take you to the dump, to the garbage pile. This is actually a constant appeal to God's people all through the Bible. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 is, is actually a really good example of this. Is really actually foundational because it's Psalm 1 is foundational to the rest of the Psalms. But here's how the whole Psalter starts out. All these 150 songs that are in there start off with this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's just three parallel ways of saying, don't keep company with those kinds of people. Delight, rather, in the word of God. Proverbs 13.20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Or 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins or corrupts good morals. It's a basic tenet of the Bible. Basic wisdom. Put yourself around good people. It's not even in the Bible, right? It's just a fact of life. Be careful about people that will want you to swerve from the truth. Cleanse yourself from them. Find people that will challenge you to grow deeper in your faith, not people that are going to challenge you to question your faith. That is Paul's constant encouragement to Timothy. It'll come up again here in these verses. It's God's wise word to us, to his people, to his children. And we would do well to listen to the Father. Here's the deal. You have been set apart as holy. When you were saved, you were already made clean. You were separated. You were set apart, taken out from the world. And at the same time, you were set apart to God. You already are an honorable vessel. You have been set apart. So don't go back there. Gold and silver remain gold and silver. And God has taken you out. Now he's saying, stay right there. And when you do that, you will be useful to the master of the house and ready for every good work. By not doing that, by being around bad company, you make yourself less useful. So don't pollute yourself with people who try to call themselves Christian, people who try to do all kinds of gymnastics these days to try to make the Bible fit into their own distorted image of what things should be like. 
It's people that make God into their own image. Here are some examples. These kind of people will do all sorts of gymnastics and contortions to make evolution fit into Genesis. Or they'll try to justify abortion. Or they'll try to affirm same-sex marriage these days and homosexuality. The, the latest thing now that I've heard is to justify same-sex attraction as uh, spiritual friendships. As long as desires are not acted upon, it's okay, they say, for Christians to, to have those kinds of friendships. Be careful about entering into these kinds of discussions. While Paul encourages believers to start by cleansing themselves from what is dishonorable, that's how you can be useful to the master of the house in the church. But there's some action here involved in doing that. It says that we need to be, and I've put it this way, in a full-out sprint. There in verses 22 and 23, the, the Christian life is a running life. But just when you thought you might be, you know, you, you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm too old, my legs don't work anymore, I can't run. If you look closer, you'll notice that this really isn't about the legs. It's actually about the heart. You've got two running words there, flee youthful passions and pursue a number of things there. But at the, end of, at the end of verse 22, it talks about having a pure heart. So you've got that concept there of being clean again, pure, unstained. And it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of, of the affections. What is it that you treasure? Which directions do you take in order to get to those things that you, yeah, you treasure? It's where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Right? And so he says that the way to be useful to God as a believer in his church is to both flee and to pursue. So this is not two different paths that we're running on here. This is running in one direction. It's running away from something while at the same time running towards something else. It's running away from what you were like before to what you are called to be like now. It's distancing yourself from one way of life, that former life, into a new way of life. And it's a full-out sprint. He starts by saying, flee youthful passions. So what is Paul telling Timothy and what's God telling us to run from here? What are youthful passions? Well, sometimes we automatically think that that's talking about sexual sort of things, right? Sexual immorality, as we're told in different places, to flee those things. And the word uh, basically does mean that. But, but Paul's not limiting it to just that. I think he's thinking here of everything that we were like when we were younger. All those passions that we had when we were youth. You might put it this way. When you were younger, you may have been a little bit too passionate about everything. You may have been a little bit more unfiltered. You may have been more reactionary. You may have been more impatient. If you Heard something you thought was wrong, you might have responded like right now before taking time to think about it. You may have been quicker to get angry. You may have been more aggressive. Whatever it is, he's saying flee those youthful passions. Paul's just telling Timothy that when he deals with people there in that church, people that do need to be dealt with, that he not be too impulsive. That he restrain his passions a little bit. That he not fly off the handle. That he not respond out of frustration. That he not respond too harshly. That Basically, that he exhibits self-control. Don't react like you did when you were younger. So that's the negative part of it. 
flee youthful passions. Being reactive like that can, can ruin your usefulness. But then he quickly goes to the positive. While you're fleeing away from youthful passions, you ought to pursue instead righteousness, faith, love, and peace. This, this is how you can be useful to the master of the house. We could summarize all these qualities with the word godliness. Often in First and Second Timothy, he's telling us and he's telling the church to, to continue to move toward godliness. Pursue godliness. Here's the right way to use your energy. Run away from youth-like impulsivity, but run hard after godliness. And I love the line that he attaches at the end of those pursuits. He says, along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. This is those who you ought to keep company with. Listen, pursuing godliness is something that is best done in the company of God's people. If you're working together as a group of sincere Christians, it'll be much easier to not be impulsive. Someone will, will inevitably call you on it. They'll correct you. And they'll always be pushing you towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So make sure you surround yourselves with fellow Christians, those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's the good kind of company to keep. Surround yourself with people who have similar struggles, but who also have similar pursuits. This kind of fellowship is an added bonus to the Christian life. We neglect it at our own peril. It is a means of grace from the, from the Lord himself. Pursue those things along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So if you want to make sure your heart stays pure, stay in fellowship with God's people. We could say that this is a group sprint. This, this is the way that God has designed it to work. And now you have a whole group of people who are useful to the master, ready for every good work. When you surround yourselves with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart, you'll be able to deal with issues in a godly way, more so than if you try to deal with them alone. So group up with God's people. Start a running team, as it were. If you want to grow in godliness, be around godly people. You can help each other with that pursuit. You can fight to have pure hearts. You can fight to put your affections, to set your minds on that which is honorable. And as it says in Philippians 4, that which is honorable, that which is just, that which is pure, that which is lovely, and all these things that are excellent and praiseworthy. But when you pursue those things, when you pursue righteousness, faith, faith, love, and peace, in the company of those who call upon the Lord, it will also convince you to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. So he's saying, don't include that on your running team. Don't get caught up in that. You won't have any time for that stuff. You'll recognize it for what it is. The word translated foolish there is actually the Greek word moros. It's the same word from where we get the word moron. It's moronic, it's, and it's ignorant, it says. That means uneducated, infantile, lacking sense. Now, sometimes think those controversies, that kind of talk, foolish talk, must have some sort of pull again, just like as we talked about last week, that those sort of controversies could be interesting, right? They, they could be riveting, but in the end, it's saying that they are useless for what really matters. They just distract us from the ultimate life and death, important, ultimate issues. You've got no time for that. The, the time is too urgent to, to, to waste your time on that stuff. All those things do is sidetrack us from being useful to the master. 
And so we need to be discerning. This brand of talk can happen and does happen in churches and in the name of the church. This kind of thing actually is so easily accessible today. If you really want, you don't really even need to belong to a church to, to hear churchy stuff. You can find so-called religious broadcasting everywhere. And there's some good stuff out there. And there's some not-so-good stuff out there. And there's some terrible stuff out there. But it's all out there for your taking. And let me just encourage you that the best way to be discerning about what is good and right is to belong to a local church. It's only in the context of the church that you can have the help in discerning what's good from those who call upon the name of the Lord from that which is useless. Like I said, there are controversies or false teachings that can distract us from our pursuits. They're always going to try to get us to major on the minors. They'll always try to create doubt. That will be their outcome. This is the kind of talk that comes from useless vessels. It's the kind of stuff that's fit in our illustration for the dumpster. It just produces that which is useless. It says there it, it breeds quarrels. No, that's not what we want in the church. We want to be a unified force. We don't want to be people, we, we, we want to be the kind of people that are pursuing righteousness and faith and love and peace. We want to be the people that are on the road to holiness and godliness and purity, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. So, run away from youthful passions, exhibit self-control, join with fellow Christians to strive for godliness and holiness, and while you're running, don't get discouraged by foolish, or don't get distracted by foolish controversies. And that brings us to the kind of attitude or mindset that marks the Lord's servant. He kind of jumps off that last part of verse 23 about it only producing quarrels and says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He's just saying, don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. Don't relate to those, those people, those coral breeding people like that. Don't fight quarrels with corals. Don't be the one that is contentious. Don't just look to win the argument, even though you've, you're probably right. Don't just look to win the argument. Don't, don't body slam people with the Bible. There are times when we need to contend for the truth, yes, but we don't want to be doing that in an argumentative type way. We don't go looking for a fight, looking for a quarrel. Rather, here's what God's servant is like. Here's how the Lord's servant deals with people. Be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. And and so here's the balance. Yes, we have to contend for the truth. We're called to take up our armor in, in spiritual battle. We have to refute false teaching. But we also have to be gentle and humble. This is really just assuming the character of Jesus, isn't it? The one who says, come to me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's interesting that he, right before he says those words in, in Matthew 11, he's, he's just warned people, warned actually whole cities, that it's going to be worse for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet he comes here and says, come to me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He taught the truth. He taught it clearly. He taught it intentionally. He taught it boldly, yet he was gentle. He was kind to everyone. And when people reacted with evil, he was patient. 
He, he always responded to evil with good. Paul was the same way. Paul was another one who never shied away from the truth. He never compromised his message, but he says things like, We were gentle among you, as he says to the Thessalonian church, as a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so in dealing with the different kinds of people we'll encounter, we should always be kind. Speak the truth, Ephesians says, but speak the truth in love. Speak it boldly, speak it with conviction, without reservation, but have an attitude of humility and grace and gentleness. The Lord's servant is kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You might, want to, you might just ask, why should we treat our opponents like this? After all, these are people who are trying to make us swerve from the truth. As it said back in verse 18, these are people who, whose talk is going to spread like gangrene. In verse 17, these are people who can bring ruin and destruction. Verse 14, shouldn't we just, just shut them down? We've got, we've got the power to do that. We can do that. Why don't we just silence them? Shouldn't we just get into their faces and, and, and argue them into submission so that we can tap them out and then stand over them and declare that the truth won? No, we're called here to correct them, yes. We need to correct their course. We need to teach truth. We need to confront untruth. It's through correction that people will come to their senses. But there is a godly way to confront and to correct. And God will use that attitude, actually it says in the last few verses, to make them come to their senses. Did you notice that? We, could, we should correct our opponents with gentleness. Verse 25, why? Why treat opponents like that? Because when we are kind and patient and gentle, God might actually use that mindset might use those attitudes, those efforts to do a work in that opponent's eternal soul. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, so if you need any motivation for having that kind of attitude, there it is might snatch people out of the fires of hell. God might just use our gentleness and our humility while speaking the truth to bring people to repentance, to make them change their course from being opponents to being brothers and sisters. He might use our gentleness to bring people from swerving to the truth and from teaching untruth to actually having a knowledge of the truth as those who need the gospel, as those who are deluded as those who are intoxicated and inebriated with untruth as people who need to come to their senses that really that word really just means to sober up part of being the lord's servant useful in the master's house is to have this kind of let's call it evangelistic compassion to hope and pray that god might use us to bring people to repentance and to the knowledge of the truth We can't save them. Only God can. But God sometimes chooses to do that through our gentleness and through our humility. For his glory. Well, these are all ways in which we can be useful in the master's house, ready for every good work. Let's be thankful that we have been given this privilege by God through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ of of, of living in his house 
And not only of living there, but of serving him. And not only of serving him, but of being useful for his purposes. It's because of that that we get to be his choice vessels. And let's strive together for holiness and for godliness, for pure hearts as we aim to serve our Lord and our Master, Jesus Christ. And then let's realize that the way in which we live and act as God's servant can have that great effect as God uses our very lives and our very interactions to wake people up from their spiritual drunkenness and to help them escape from the snare of the devil. Let's bow in prayer. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that these words would cause us again to to first be amazed at the fact that you would invite us into your house, that you would stoop to consider us as part of your family together with your people. Thank you, Father, for taking us out of the world, for setting us apart to yourself. We pray that we would strive in the power of Jesus to continue to, to cleanse ourselves, to separate ourselves from that which is dishonorable. Help us to seek Christian fellowship so that we can together pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace so that we can together see progress in our becoming more like Christ, in our godliness. Help us to see progress in our move away from ungodliness May that be the trajectory of our lives and the life of our church. And Father, if there's anyone here today that has been maybe just even sidetracked or even duped by controversies that have nothing to do with the truth of the gospel, we ask that you would grant them repentance. Maybe it's just the kind of repentance that helps them to realize that they've been misguided and and just need to change course to go the other direction. Or it might be the kind of repentance where they turn to you in saving faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that it might be so for your glory, for our good. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.